0: And I'm ready,
1: so come on, baby. Hey, Nasty Women. I'm Kate Harding, and my co-host is Samita Mukhopadhyay, and this is Feminasty. This week, Samita interviewed Zerlina Maxwell, director of progressive programming for SiriusXM. Zerlina was formerly the director of progressive media for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, and she wrote an essay in Nasty Women that you are going to love. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate this week because I had foot surgery about 10 days ago, and you wouldn't think that that would affect my ability to podcast, but Uh, It basically just completely wiped me out and affected my ability to do everything. So uh, Samita really stepped up and took over. So I am looking forward to listening to Samita and Zerlina, and I know that you will too. Also, at the end, we are going to have a new segment about a feminist organization that's doing great work for college age and young professional women. So stay tuned for that. All right. Well, thanks and see you next week. All right. Listeners, welcome back to Feminasty.
2: We are joined by a very good friend of mine, um, but more importantly, um, she's going to make me watch Get Out tonight. <laughs> I can't believe you haven't seen it. I'm so <laughs> Which I'm really excited about, actually, but feels so strongly that is actually staying <laughs> later today so I can watch it. But I'm very excited to introduce my good friend, Zerlina Maxwell, good friend and speaker and TV personality, and she's also the director of progressive programming for SiriusXM. She was formerly the director of progressive media for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. She worked in the campaign's press shop, pitching coverage to progressive media outlets and curating daily messaging for online influencers. No big deal. (laughs) She's a TV political analyst, speaker, and writer for a variety of national media outlets, and her writing has focused on politics, candidates, policy, culture issues, feminism, domestic violence, sexual assault. She never sleeps. She also has an essay on nasty women.
3: <laughs> I sleep, I definitely sleep, for
2: sure. Welcome, Zerlina. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And it's exciting to do this in person. We don't have Kate today because she unfortunately had foot surgery and can't come to the phone. But we all we wish Kate the best yes. for today. Zerlina, why do I have to watch Get Out like right now?
3: It's life changing. <laughs> it changed your life. And now, actually, when I'm having a moment. I call them get out moments. Um, I recognize it. I label it. And then I'm not as mad about it.
2: So it's like giving you tools.
3: Yes. To it also navigate helps.
2: Trump's America.
3: Yes. Because it also helps white people understand what's going on, too. And I think they realize um, some of the things
2: that we were saying just puts a new lens on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm so excited to watch it. So we haven't seen it. I'm like,
3: a little mad about that. And then, literally, I just bought it for her right now. And she I did. Said, Merry Christmas. This is your Christmas present. She
2: actually fan me money for this movie. <laughs>
3: um, yes, I did. Because I was like, what? We're buying it right now. <laughs> right now. You can't go another day. I will not leave here until you watch this movie.
2: Yeah, this is, that is, this is friendship. <laughs> you have no idea. Because I knew she was going to be mad at me for not having seen it. I can't believe I, I already knew I was in trouble. <laughs> like, for all my transgressions, this wasn't a particularly bad one. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, We're going to fix it. So, talk to us, it's, it feels like it was so long ago now, but your essay for Nasty Women, you know, chronicles your time on the Clinton campaign. And talks about a little-known fact about the campaign that I think didn't get a lot of media attention. What fact is that to really
3: That there were more black women on Hillary Clinton's campaign than any presidential campaign in American history, and that includes both of Barack Obama's campaigns.
2: Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about what your essay is about.
3: Well, you know, there's a lot of things that I could have written, I think, post-campaign, because I you know, immediately, maybe the Friday of the ele- the week of the election, I had booked a trip to St. Martin, which sadly was hit by the hurricane this year, but I knew I wanted to go away, and, you know, when you're trying to plan a trip, you're waiting for people to, to like, coordinate, and I was just like, I'm going alone, I'm just going.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It was already pre-planned, and so, you know, there's a, plenty of things I could have written about, but when I was there, I was thinking about a lot of stories about the campaign that I wanted to... Push forward and make sure people knew. And one of them was the fact that there were more Black women, and that we were in every aspect of the campaign. Even though a lot of people critique the campaign as not speaking to Black people, we were the people in those meetings, Mm -hmm. trying to make sure that we were speaking to Black Mm -hmm. people. We were trying to address issues that impacted our communities. One of the senior advisors, Mignon Moore, was instrumental in shepherding all of the Black people through through what you know, can be a very hard thing in a campaign of this size. And also reminding us to make sure that every meeting we went in, we were thinking about our communities and we were thinking about the people who look like Mm -hmm. us who could not be in those meetings, who could not shape policy for a presidential campaign. I mean, there are things that Hillary Clinton said that I had, I factored into or that I had an impact on, Mm -hmm. specifically around issues I care about. And so I think it was important to document that was what I kept the word that kept bringing through my brain is like, I wanted to document for history Mm
2: -hmm.
3: that Hillary Clinton brought in more black women than any other campaign in American history. And there's a reason for that. I think she's always had black women in her direct sphere of influence. Um, When she was in the state department, her chief of staff was a black woman Mm -hmm. when she was in the Senate, her chief of staff was a black woman. And so I think it was, critical to be honest about like what Hillary Clinton represents which I say honestly is you know in some ways she could be the face of second wave feminism Mm. and I think there are some critiques of her that are fair but I also know a lot more about her now than I even did when I joined the campaign and while we could critique anyone because we're all human and we make mistakes and we have privileges and blind spots she's Always listen to black women. Mm -hmm. And I I titled the essay Trust Black Women because, one, 94% of us voted for Hillary Clinton because we knew how terrible it would be under Donald Trump. Like, Mm -hmm. we are under no illusions. But also because Hillary Clinton trusts black Mm -hmm. women and put us in her campaign and listen to our voices because she values them.
2: Yeah. And I love the first line of the essay, which is... America, black women tried to save you. You did not want to be saved. I was really
3: mad when I wrote that.
2: Yeah, but yeah, it's pissed. so accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that makes me think, because I know you've talked a lot about, obviously, a lot of the work you do is again uh, around rape culture, but you also write and talk a lot about feminism and specifically black feminism, you know, and black women is almost the leaders of feminism and the future of feminism. Yeah. Um, what does, well, first of all, what does black feminism mean to you? And second, like talk a little bit about that. Cause I have heard you speak on this before and I love it.
3: Well, I think I just try, I mean, the first thing to know is that I'm not the most radical. I would never ever try to be. I know that like, I've, made mistakes Mm -hmm. and I like make mistakes in my feminism all the time and like my analysis could be better sometimes and I could read more I could reread a lot too Mm -hmm. so that my analysis is sharp always right but like part that's part of my feminism is Mm -hmm. the imperfections in it and I think black feminism is understanding that black women have always been feminists and while so many women now are sort of thinking about the lean in model of feminism, the person taking care of your kid while you're leaning in at work is a black woman. Probably Mm -hmm. that's always been the case. So where's the feminism for those women Mm -hmm. that are taking care of your kid while you're leaning in at your corporate Mm -hmm. job. And I think just black women have always been, have always had to do some of the things that feminism teaches us Mm -hmm. inherently. So to speak to that more. You know, it, this election, I just think about this election a lot. The election of Donald Trump, sort of, white women are pissed, and they're like, I can't believe this happened! Yeah. And black women are like, welcome. Like, welcome to our reality. Yeah, that shit's not fair, and, and men abuse women and get away with it, and most of the time they don't even believe it when it's black women. Mm-hmm. So, nobody is even there to even say, like, to, to blame you, because your experience is not even covered, it's not even, a rel- it's not even relevant. And I think that the election, so many white women were like, man, this is a problem. Or, like, they were, they were like, we need to take to the streets. Um, but black women were already in the streets because our children were being murdered. And at the same time, in some, in some capacity, some of the traumas that our community experiences is also then abuse that we experience at the hands of black men. Mm-hmm. And there's no no march for us. Yeah. So, I think part of what this election did is obviously a lot of white women are now woke. I hate saying that, but that's <laughs> it's relevant, works. but black women were already out here. yeah, we were, and that's always been the case because we printed the flyers for the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and then the men, men get all the credit. So yeah, we don't really get the credit,
2: but we do the work yeah. Um, so let's talk about abuse. There's, like, a really big public conversation happening right now. Every day, it's like, you see a name trending on Twitter, and you're like, why is this name trending? Did this person die, or are they a serial rapist? This is now a daily fixture of American life. Why do you think so many people are stepping forward right now?
3: Because there's power in numbers, and so I think... Instead of being the only woman coming forward to say, this really powerful man did this to me, and then we're basically going to blame you or tear apart your story, look into your background, and you're the only one out there. It's easy to dismiss one story. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult to dismiss myriad stories in every single industry with people of all races and backgrounds. And so I think women are empowered by seeing another woman come forward to tell her story. And you're like, that happened to me too. And there are some, to, to literally quote Toronto's quote hashtag, but I think also women, I've, I've seen articles where somebody is coming forward to tell their story because the person that abused them was outed by another woman. Mm. So say, say Har- you know, Harvey, I know Harvey Weinstein abused me and I see Rose McGowan tell her story. But, and I want Rose McGowan to be believed, and so I tell my story because mm-hmm. I know he's an abuser. Mm-hmm. And so, in some ways, I think that, you know, the reason why it's coming, coming out in multiples is because if you're telling your story, and I'm telling my story, and we're all telling it at the same time, we're more likely to be believed. Mm-hmm. And I just really think that we're in a moment where we're actually believing women, um, where we defaulted to disbelieving them before. Yeah. And so that's why so many of are coming out, because it's the one, it's one moment that we've been waiting for when we can tell our stories and everyone is like,
2: I'm so sorry, mm-hmm. what a scumbag. Instead of mm-hmm. being like, what were you wearing or whatever mm-hmm. we used to do. I have so many questions, because <laughs> I have you here and I want to ask you all of them. You know, the thing that I have been noticing and writing and reporting on this is this concept where now a lot of women writers have to defend what it means to believe women Mm -hmm. and you know what does that mean to you like do you are you afraid of this like slippery slope or like what are you afraid of you know
3: so I wrote maybe three years now three years ago for the Washington Post the title is not great I did not pick the title it was (laughs) no matter what Jackie says we we should generally believe rape claims I did not write that title Um, I had nothing to do with it Within the text of the article, I argue that outside of the legal system, as people, we should default to believing women and supporting them. I still believe that. Yeah. I think when we're not in the jury, actually, just defaulting to being, you know, an empathetic human being and saying, "I'm sorry that happened to you. How can I help?" is it would change the world. Not just because now you've actually, you know, helped to validate that person's trauma and experience. They know that they have support in that moment, and, like, they're not alone.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think, you know, victims are re-traumatized by our impulse to disbelieve yeah. people's stories. And so I think that believing women means defaulting to, you know, saying something really simple, like, I'm sorry that happened to you. How can yeah. I help? And it has nothing to do with ruining the guy's mm-hmm. life. In fact, they're irrelevant in that moment. hmm We're not in court, and I'm not on the jury, and I'm not the prosecutor, so nobody's Mm -hmm. going to jail as a result Mm -hmm. of me just having compassion Mm -hmm. in that split second when somebody is, like, really vulnerable. So I think, for me, that's what it means to believe women. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that any life is ruined as a result of that default position.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, that's right. And when you think about any other type of crime, like, no other type of crime, do people blame the victim? I, I
3: heard Jamila Lemieux say it this way.
2: When somebody gets mugged, you're not like, oh my
3: god, you shouldn't have had any belongings. Yeah. Like, no one says that. Yeah. And I shout out to Jamila because that was a very, very good yeah. analogy. And I think, I think we just need to stop defaulting to disbelieving. Yeah. And and that's how I put it because I think, and it's clear that we did that and now we're not mm-hmm. doing that and mm-hmm. all of a sudden all these women are coming out that's yeah. because the culture is different.
5: Yeah.
3: And... I think that that's the, the credit for that goes to like feminists who were writing about rape culture in the seventies before we were even here, mm-hmm. or black women who were investigating like Rose Parks who was investigating the gang rapes so of black women in the South when she was in Alabama before she sat down on the bus mm-hmm. because she was woke before she sat down on the bus. Like that's not mm-hmm. she wasn't just tired. That wasn't what was happening because black women always sort of had to fight against the abuse of their bodies, and so mm-hmm. I think that. We, we get that.
2: Yeah. You
3: know, you have to... We have to default to
2: having, like, a little more empathy. Mm-hmm. hmm Do you think that women are coming forward also because of Trump?
3: Yes. Um, I do think that what's happening right now, the catalyst for this is Trump. Mm-hmm. It is. That's obvious. Because now the white women are angry. and And I think that... I think women... I've never talked to so many angry white women in a year's time, you know, like white women are pissed Mm -hmm. and I'm here for it Um, because essentially what the election of Trump did is say what he said in the tape, which is you can do anything to a woman, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: which is dehumanizing in a way that I don't think white women were Mm -hmm. were prepared for in 2017. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Black women, we get that. That's our life. We are dehumanized every time we go outside. And no one validates that we're human beings worthy of the same level of compassion and protection. Mm -hmm. But I would say, I'm here for the white woman being angry Mm -hmm. alongside me. Because when he said that in the tape and people voted for him anyway, and then they walk around in their life like they're a good person, um, you're not a good person. Yeah. Because you may not agree with what he said, but you were perfectly okay with voting for somebody who expressed those.
2: It wasn't a deal breaker.
3: Correct. And that's crazy. Yeah. So I think he's the catalyst yeah. for this culture shift mm-hmm. because I think Kate said it on the panel we did about Nasty women back at SiriusXM. She said, you know, when the president is saying, you know, you can just do anything, you can grab them by the pussy, then women and feminists who had been arguing that rape culture is a thing and that men are doing these mm-hmm. things and they're not held accountable, all of the things that we had been writing and arguing, it's a lot easier to get people to be like, you might have it up you mm-hmm. might have a because the man is literally on take saying you can just do anything you want. And he's elected after that. So against a woman who's yeah. qualified. So I think it was like the perfect storm of like maybe feminist has the point.
4: Yeah.
3: Yes, that's Sorry. what I think. So he's the catalyst. <laughs> just laugh about that. Yeah. No, he's he's the catalyst yeah. for this situation. Yeah. I'm here for it. I'm I'm happy women are speaking up. I think that this reckoning that's what I'm calling it. I think this reckoning will come back around on Trump, and I think that that could be through um, Mueller's investigation. That could be through maybe somebody's going to try to hold him accountable in Congress mm-hmm. at some point, or maybe we, the media, you know, decides to do some more investigations into additional accusations of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. I mean, on top are, of the 24, of <laughs> or the 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 dozens that yeah. are already out here, and so. I think that this reckoning will will eventually come back on Donald Trump. Yeah. I think he's the catalyst for the shift, though.
2: hmm Yeah, and I see, you know, one of the tweets that goes viral, or, like, actually pieces of content that keeps going viral, is all the people that have lost their jobs and yeah. how Trump is still in the White House. And, and I totally get that sentiment, but I also think it's just, like, the process is different. Yeah. And so, you know, this is where the Al Franken stuff does... Yes become something because like we know that the republicans aren't going to demand that any of these people step down including the president so you know that i i just think that piece of it is like that's the long game right (laughs) like it's not that's they're not going to just budge on that because they're not worried about the bottom line in the same way that weinstein company is right
3: well the thing is is that i've been thinking about this a lot because i've done a few segments this week where they're like "Is there a double standard in politics i'm like no it's different like when you're a congressperson, you're not an at will employee. You're yeah. an Elected official, yeah. and so when people decided to go vote for Donald Trump, they were saying tacitly approving approving of that yeah. what he said in that tape. And so don't get mad now that you elected somebody who expressed these views on tape. He did it, and you and you he's elected now. Yeah. Um, and we swore him, we swore him in, like, there were probably, I mean, electors had to vote, like, there were a couple of different periods in which we could have intervened after the election, mm-hmm. which clearly seemed to be not on the up and up. I mean, like, the hack emails coming out the first day of the DNC should have tipped us off that something was going mm-hmm. on that was clearly not normal, mm-hmm. um, but we just kept it moving and did our conventions, and we had the election, and we did everything like we always do, and we're like, oh, shoot. We didn't really think that the guy who said he you can grab women by the vagina
2: mm-hmm.
3: could get elected. That's crazy, and this yeah. literally our reality every day.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, okay, so I have two oh, questions, but yeah, I wanted to also make
3: the point that because he's an elected official, because Al Franken is an elected official, essentially. You know, there is no HR department that you can report it to. Mm-hmm. So there's two two things. One, they need to pass the bipartisan legislation Gillibrand introduced, the Me Too Act, mm-hmm. because they need to change the review and reporting policies in the Congress. But the second thing is we should probably
2: not elect people um, that have these accusations in their background.
4: Mm.
2: All right, so Zerlina, we have a question that we ask all of our guests. What makes you a nasty woman?
3: Well, I mean, I think that I... And I've always been this way. I don't know where this came from. I think probably my mother. But, like, I never, I always wanted to know what was going on, and I was always, like, able to stand up for myself. So I would say what makes me a nasty woman is that if I see something wrong, I never just let that go. Like, it bothers me. I want to fix it. Mm-hmm. I want to figure out how to argue to convince other people that's a problem and that they should also work to fix it.
2: mm mm-hmm.
3: Like, I can't live without doing those that. So I think what makes me a nasty woman is just, like, I refuse to be quiet.
2: Mm.
3: Even though I'm actually a quiet yeah. person.
2: well, little known fact. Yeah.
3: Um, but mostly it's because I'm thinking.
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How to dismantle the if patriarchy. You had the VO,
3: if, well, if you had the VO. Well, yeah. I have this joke. So one of my friends, is, her name is Cleo Wade. She's a poet. And we we decided that People are always telling black women in particular to smile because if we're not smiling, they're like, you're not smiling. Oh my God, you're upset. And I'm like, I'm just like thinking about food. Um, And so the joke that I have with Cleo is I could be thinking about dismantling the patriarchy or I could be thinking about my next meal. Yeah. Either one. Probably 50-50 chance. Yeah. It's one or the other. (laughs) And I'm not smiling because I'm deep into that thought. Yeah. And particularly when I'm going to eat next. So... If you see me and I'm not smiling, I'm either thinking about how I'm going to dismantle the patriarchy. Yeah. Or I'm thinking about lunch. Yeah. <laughs> it's true.
2: Yeah, true that, true that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having
5: me.
1: In our discussions, we realized a lot of the feminists we highlight work in and around media, so we wanted to find some feminist activists doing different kinds of work. We were introduced to an organization called Feminist Camp, which seeks to educate college-aged women on their options post-graduation. Here's Amy Richards, president and co-founder of Soapbox, the organization that runs Feminist Camp, talking about the creation of this program.
4: I had been traveling around the country spending a lot of time on college campuses and I found two things. One was that there was a lot of anxiety on the part of college students in general, but specifically those who had majored in women's studies and other liberal arts degrees about what were the job possibilities waiting out there for them. It seemed there was two jobs at Ms. Magazine and they were taken. So there was a lot of concern that they wouldn't be able to sort of marry their curiosity in women's studies with an appropriate profession. The other thing I noted was that people who were, Interested in feminism, most of the material that they were getting ready access to was, was very dated. It was dated historically. It was dated in terms of issues. And so I felt that there needed to be a better understanding of what feminism looked like in a current experience, a- a- as I was experiencing it through groups like Global Fund for Women and International Women's Health Coalition. So it was a way to sort of bridge this gap between feminism as we knew it and feminism as, as it is. And so Feminist
1: Camp was born in 2005. Now here's Amy again talking about the students of the camp.
4: Students and participants come from all over, small towns, big universities, jobs that they're already thriving in, and they're often the big feminist in that situation. And so all of a sudden you're taking somebody who's used to being the feminist spokesperson in whatever situation they're in. And then you put them in a room with 18 other feminist spokespeople. And so there's like, wait, oh, wait, you understand that and I understand that. So the other thing I think that we experience is that, even if we're two women who work in publishing in New York City and went to fancy colleges, how we experiencing f- how we experience feminism is so different, regardless right. of, of who we are. I mean, of of who we are based on all sorts of circumstances. And so it's getting people to really listen and to hear other people's experience of feminism, and validate that and at least respect it for the time that we're together. I mean, I'll just say that consistently, people describe it as life changing. And I think a lot of it is because they get to have their feminism validated, you know, by a peer group and by professionals. And that, that level of confidence, I think, is that if we had more people who could experience that, especially at that critical moment in their lives, I think we would have fewer people later in life not able to speak up because they wouldn't feel like such a loner. When they need to call on that community, it's there for them, even if it's just mentally sort of calling on it in a moment of, I need to remember that, that this is bigger than me and that there are people out there who think like I do. So it's, it's larger, the effect of it is, is larger than we could ever serve in a one-week period of time.
1: That effect that Amy talks about goes further than just what's taught in the classes. Carly Romeo, current director of Feminist Camp and former camper herself, spoke to this point.
0: I was actually one of the students who was experiencing the anxiety that Amy was describing um, about 10 years ago, and I went to Feminist Camp as a camper, which is how I got involved. And I think what what I sensed at the time, what we all kind of confirmed in my cohort and what the cohorts continue to report is that the meetings that we take them to, the experiences that we're able to give them, the structured things that we do in Feminist Camp are you know, beautiful and eye opening and educational. But the most meaningful part of the experience is the the sort of in between times, the times when we're moving from one meeting to another, and they got to connect with each other about, you know, an issue they're having at having at home or in their work, or just that ability to share your life with other people and have them sort of assume to be able to assume the fact that they're coming at it from a feminist perspective. It gives them a chance to like to think about their lives in a different way and imagine what's possible for them if they're you know able to cultivate that sort of community. That community gets to build each other up within other unlikely feminist
1: spaces as well, like the tech industry. Here's Carly again.
0: Last year, we just expanded over to Seattle and started doing a camp mm-hmm. there. And one of the themes that we covered in the Seattle camp last summer was tech, and we spent an entire day at a company that is one of the top video game designing companies in, in the country and we spoke only with women. They have a women's caucus and I believe a women of color caucus and we spent a lot of time talking to them about their experiences and I think the more we're able to tap into those groups as they start unifying in real time, we're able to bring the campers to them and you know, provide that sort of almost encouragement. The topics we cover and the jobs that we illustrate evolve as the, the world evolves, really.
1: And that evolution has been a successful way of cultivating graduates who go out and make their spaces feminist. In that vein, I was curious what alums go on to do and what types of industries they go into.
0: So many. <laughs> uh, the The list is, uh, we have a, a, over 300 alums at this point. So it's a really, really, really long list. It really runs the gamut um, in terms of what they're what they're doing now. Um, but they all find their own kind of unique way to put a feminist spin on it. We really want to sort of open it up as much as we can and make sure that it's a program that's reachable for as many people as possible because like Amy was saying, it is life-changing in many different ways. And the more powerful feminists we have in the workforce who know how to own their feminism, the better position I think we're all gonna be in.
1: Fast forward to more recent alums who've really taken this vision for Feminist Camp to heart. We talked to Aliyah Canada, a camper from 2016 who now works as an assistant editor at the Feminist Press. She talked about her click moment for feminism.
5: It's kind of an interesting one because I grew up with feminism modeled in my home a lot. My mom was, you know, a top level executive in the 90s, she still is, but she doesn't call herself a feminist. And so it's kind of a word that didn't even really enter my vocabulary until late high school. And then, um, this always sounds really weird, but it was like my click moment for feminism and also for when I realized I really wanted to do media studies. I was watching the movie Mona Lisa Smile, and there's this scene where Julia Roberts' character you know, is trying to teach art history and she brings in all of these advertisements and she starts yelling about how like all of these women have interior lives, but they're only like homemakers and all these things. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That is really fucked up. So that was kind of the first moment where I both realized that, I don't want to say that I realized feminism was necessary, but that I, I became more aware of it as like a concept and that I kind of recognized all of the feminism that had been modeled before, even if it wasn't named. So
1: Aaliyah went to college, she went to feminist camp, and she started to make the spaces she touched a little more feminist.
5: When I did feminist camp, I was working at the Union Square Barnes & Noble and making quietly making subversive displays all over the fourth floor. Um, my favorite was what we called the oppressed society's table, but it was... Obviously, we can't make a sign that says that, (laughs) Um, but it it was just like a collection of writings from and authors from marginalized communities, a lot of feminist stuff, a lot of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I've I've always been into the idea of making the literary space more feminist. I did Feminist Camp, though, because uh, I'm not a natural networker. It's like not a thing I enjoy doing. And I also didn't have a natural feminist community because I didn't go through a gender studies program. Um, I kind of self-designed my undergrad and graduate degree. And so this felt like, Camp just felt like a really good way to get like a new feminist community, discover more feminist spaces in New York, and hopefully find a different job because (laughs) I was starting to reach the end of my time at Barnes & Noble. The
1: feminist community Aaliyah found helped her find that new job at the Feminist Press. Her goal is to continue being a kick-ass feminist in indie publishing.
5: I love my current job. I would like my feminist career to kind of to continue in particularly the indie publishing world because I think that's just I think it's a place where it like I can really affect change in a in a way that's just a little bit not easier, but I don't, I'm not going to be fighting a billion of the same battles every day. So even if I leave, you know, it's great. I'm at a mission based nonprofit, but like, even if I leave here, I'm going to still try to acquire feminist things. I'm going to still try to acquire books that don't buy marginalized authors, stories that haven't been told before. And I think you're better able to do that at Indies when you're not fighting over, like, six-figure book deals and things like that. Like, I kind of like the idea of continuing to find debut voices or people who aren't as well-known because I think, I don't know, I just think that's a really important aspect of the movement and the work, and I'm never going to be someone who wants to be on, like, the front lines of a march. I will be very pleasantly in the middle somewhere. But if I can find someone who does want to be, like, right up there and be the voice. I'm more than happy to find that person and uplift them and help them as best I can.
1: That's what we love about organizations like Feminist Camp. Their effects aren't isolated to the people who've attended classes or had an opportunity to major in feminist disciplines. They're so much bigger than that. People like Aaliyah, people like Carly and Amy go out, take their space in the world, and make it feminist. Their work isn't flashy or glamorous. It's the everyday work that defines feminism in the 21st century, and we think that's pretty nasty. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your comments and your reviews. Please keep leaving them. Please keep sending us voice memos to feminasty@macmillan.com, and stay nasty.